Okay, we were talking about Romans chapter 11. We left off last time. And we had just gone through verse 24. The last thing we looked at was the illustration of the olive tree. And uh, we saw how it was according to condition as to whether or not you were uh, part of the elect. That was that you were part of the olive tree or whether you were hardened, which was that was conditional upon what you did. Um, Verse 20 says, quite right, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief and you stand only by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. And uh, and in verse 23, we see that you have to continue in your continue in God's kindness or we can be cut off from the tree as well, even after we were grafted in through faith. So it's conditional. Now, what we want to do is look at verses 25 through 36 the end of the chapter. Look at some of the verses in there that might be problem verses again because they are very frequently taken out of their context. And we have um, in verse 25, let's read verse, a few verses here. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimate that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Um, Interesting here, he's talking about a partial hardening has happened to Israel. And he says, and this is the way that we can understand what it says in the scripture about all Israel will be saved. Because a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Now, so what does he mean by that? Well, to Israel, the nation, a partial hardening has happened. That is, some of them have rejected the Messiah. Some of them had accepted. Matter of fact, many of them had accepted. But some of them had rejected the Messiah. And so a hardening happened because of their unbelief. And that is how we can understand, if we look at it that way, that those who have accepted the Messiah are really Israel. Back to Romans eight or Romans 9 again. They are not all Israel which are descended from Israel. And he uses the word Israel two different ways. Those who have accepted the Messiah as being the children of the promise, the spiritual Israel. And those who have not accepted the Messiah as being natural Israel, but not a part of the children of the promise. Or as he calls them, the children of the flesh and the children of the promise. So then he says... Basically, in 25 and 26, a partial hardening has happened to Israel. What does that mean? That part of the Israelites had accepted the Messiah and part of them had not. And because of that, um, we can understand how the scripture means in the Old Testament that all Israel will be saved in that the people who have accepted the Messiah are part of Israel. They are the, the children of the promise. And so all Israel will be saved. And then he quotes from... Um, Well, where's he quoting from here? Quoting from Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21. And possibly he's quoting part of Isaiah 27, 9. As we as we know it. Anyway, he was quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah 59, 20 and 21. When he quotes, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. And it appears as if the last phrase is from the other other uh, passage. Um. Let's look at Isaiah 59, 20 and 21. It's very obviously conditional. 
in the passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 59, 20 and 21. And a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. The Redeemer is going to come to those people who have turned from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them. But then he goes on to state something else rather than what Paul states here in uh, verse 27 of Romans 11. When I take away their sins appears to have been taken up from from chapter 27 and verse 9. The idea that's involved there. So he says it makes it very clear in the Old Testament. The Redeemer is going to come to those people that turn away from transgression. You see, and he says this is how we can understand that all Israel will be saved. Every person who turns away from transgression becomes a part of Israel. They become a child of the promise. Or as he puts it in Galatians, we are all the children of children of Abraham through faith in Christ Jesus. And so as we put our trust in Christ, Gentile Jew, doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, as you put your faith in Christ, you become a part of Israel because they are not all Israel which are descended from Israel. You see? So it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become a child of Abraham, and then that is how the scripture can say all Israel will be saved because that remnant, the children of the promise who have accepted the Messiah, is what the scripture is referring to as Israel. And it's very clearly uh, conditional in the Old Testament when it says that the Redeemer will come to those who turn away from transgression in Jacob. And the Redeemer does not come to those who do not turn away from transgression. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I think the reason that Paul snatched up this other phrase from another portion of Isaiah was to emphasize the point that he's talking about the way all Israel will be saved. It's when they turn away from their sins. And when their sins are dealt with, when a person's sins are dealt with, he becomes a part of Israel. And thus, all Israel will be saved because the definition of Israel is those people who have turned away from ungodliness and transgression. Okay, so that's so much for the problem of all Israel will be saved. Yes, all Israel will be saved, and it's because the definition of Israel that Paul gives here is the children of the promise, those who have received the Messiah. Then in verses 28 and 29, we read this. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies, that is Israel, the nation of Israel, those that have not accepted the Messiah. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies, For your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, or of choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He's making a contrast here. So he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, that is, in respect to what they've done with the Messiah, they are enemies, because they basically rejected the Messiah. Those that are a part of that hardening, the part of the people that were hardened rejected the Messiah, and so they're enemies towards the people who have accepted the Messiah. And that's for the sake of the gospel. And the gospel divides between them, and the people who rejected then became the enemies of those who accepted the Messiah. So he says, from the viewpoint of the gospel, or or those who've accepted and those who've rejected, they've become your enemies, which happened. I mean, the 
people who refused the Messiah became really belligerent in Israel against those who had, and great persecution followed. So, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from a different standpoint, and that's the standpoint of God's choice of the nation of Israel, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. God made promises to the fathers of the, of the nation of Israel, that is, the, uh, the, the pa different patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, um, and different, different people down from there. But for the standpoint of the fathers, the nation of Israel is still beloved in that he chose them to reveal the Messiah to the world. And, there's, and so in that way, they have been specially chosen by God. And because of the promises that God made to the fathers of the, of the nation of Israel, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so forth, um, because of those promises, then God dealt with the nation in a certain fashion. And you can see in um, Exodus 32, which we looked at, Moses used the promises that God had made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He used those, those promises and said, look, God, you've made promises to our fathers. And for the sake of the fathers, if for nothing else, please don't wipe out the nation. And, be, and he appealed to the promises that had been made to the, to the fathers from God. And so from the standpoint of God's choice, that is of the choice of the nation of Israel to use them to bring the Messiah into the world and the promises that he made to the, to the Israelis, he says um, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. He goes on in verse 29 and says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, in this context, that doesn't ha this has a limited context, by the way. He is talking about the choice that God has made to have the nation of Israel bring truth into the world. He chose the nation of Israel. He's talking about their choosing according to the fathers, the promises made to the fathers. And so when he says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, he's talking about the choice that he has made with the nation of Israel. The choice that he has made with the nation of Israel. And the choice that he made with the nation of Israel, number one, was not dependent upon what they did. It was dependent upon his choice alone to use them as a nation to bring truth to the world. Now, how effective they were in communicating that truth to the world depended upon their choice. But the fact that they were chosen did not depend upon what they had done. And we read that in Romans 9 as well. Okay? Remember talking about Jacob and Esau, that before um, before the, any of either, either of the nations existed, God made a promise, this is the way it's going to be, the older will serve the younger. Now that didn't have to do with the individuals, Jacob and Esau, but with the nations. And it stood according to God's choice, not according to the choices that they made, that Jacob and Esau made. Because God made that, that uh, statement before either of them was born. So then when it refers to the gifts and the calling of God, it's talking about according to those choices that God makes that are not in response to our choices. He's talking about those choices that God makes in history, such as with the nation of Israel or dealing with uh, Jacob and e you know the, the uh, Jacob and Esau thing with the nations, Edom and Israel. So the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That is those things that he chooses apart from our choice. And yet we've seen all the way through these passages that there are certain things that are dependent upon our choice. And if we refuse, then we can have we can lose certain things like in verse um, um, 22. Behold, then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. 
So then there are things, there are gifts and promises of God and the calling of God are conditional if it relates to our will. But there are some callings and some gifts that God has made that are not conditional upon our will, such as the choosing of the nation of Israel to bring truth to the world and to bring in the Messiah. So then that scripture, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, has a limited context and can't be applied to everything. Things in our lives that are conditional upon what we do don't fit into that verse. And some of those things are revocable. That is, like Paul says, you, those of you who try to be justified by the law, Galatians 5, you have fallen from grace. That gift is revocable. If we choose to rebel against God, we can lose our relationship with the Lord. That is, if we make that choice to rebel against him. Okay, so then that has a special context and we need to point that out. Because a lot of times people will try to uh, relate this to salvation. You see, which is dependent upon our choice as to whether or not we're saved. Understand that? That doesn't mean you can be saved by your works, but we do have to submit to God and meet the conditions so that he can apply the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to us. So then, um, you couldn't prove once you're saved, you're always saved from this verse because it doesn't talk about that kind of thing. Okay, um, verse 30 and 31. For just as you once were disobedient to God but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So, so these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. Okay? These also now have been disobedient in order that, the, in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. And the first one, the first section, is talking about the crucifixion, the rejection by the Jews of the Messiah. Just as, just as you once were disobedient, but God now has, been, has shown mercy because of their disobedience. Excuse me. My dinner is like a good book. It keeps coming back to me. So then, in the same way that through the disobedience of the Jews, the Gentiles were shown mercy... Because through the, what they did in rejecting the Messiah, salvation came to the world, to all men, not just to the Jews, but to all men. In the same way, through the mercy that is being, being shown to the Gentiles, God can use that, as Paul states before in the chapter, to uh, bring to jealousy the Jews, show them that they are being disobedient, and then God will have mercy upon them as they repent. So it's sort of a... Uh, a two-way thing in comparison of the disobedience of one and the disobedience of the other. You see, through the disobedience of the Jews, the Gentiles received mercy. And through the, the mercy that was received by the Gentiles, God can anger or make jealous the Jews and help them to see that they've been disobedient and then bring about mercy towards them. Okay? Now, it's, it, it, he goes back and forth between these two and then he concludes with verse 32. For... Because God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. He has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Now, this verse is very frequently read by a lot of people to mean that God has made everyone be disobedient. Now, you won't find that anyplace else in the scripture. God everywhere assumes that man was responsible and therefore man was guilty for what he did. 
And you won't find any place else that says that God um, made man be sinful. You won't find that at all. God everywhere accuses man of his own sin. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. <clears throat> in Luke uh, chapter 5 and verse 6, which you don't have to look up, there, there are only two other, three other places in the scripture where this phrase is used, shut up. And that is in the New Testament. In the Old Testament Greek translation, it's used a number of times, translating different Hebrew words. In the New Testament, it's, it's only used three times. That is in Luke 5, 6, in Galatians 3.22, and in Galatians 3.23. The word is used. And then, of course, here in Romans 11.32. And in the places where it's used, we, find, we see a, a, a parallel there of what God is doing in that he pronounces a particular verdict upon a group of people which sort of puts them into a prison and says, this is where you are. And that's the, the idea of the word to mean to shut up means to encircle or to imprison. Or um, in Luke 5, it's used concerning fish. They encircled or they enclosed a great multitude of fish. They ensnared. Okay. And what God is doing when he shuts up all under disobedience that he might have mercy upon all is that he says, OK, this is where you are, folks, makes clear to them that they are in prison because of their disobedience. And then through their seeing that they are disobedient, then he can have mercy if they repent. He can have mercy upon all. The old adage goes, you got to get somebody lost before you can get them saved. Because if a person doesn't understand that they're disobedient and rebellious and in need of mercy, they'll never look for that. Well, let's look at the other passages in Galatians 2, or Galatians 3, excuse me, that are parallel to this. Galatians 3:22. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, in 29 he says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, we see in Romans 11.32, that God shuts up people in disobedience that he might have mercy upon them. He puts them in that prison that he might bring them to some other place. Okay? The um, King James Version uses this word. It says God has concluded all disobedience or he has concluded all under sin. And I looked up the English word conclude and it means to shut up or to imprison. Isn't that interesting? That the King James usage of the word back then was a very accurate usage of the word, but it's not the same now, because we use the word differently now. In um, Romans 11.32, then, he, he shuts us up on the disobedience that he might have mercy upon us, bring us out to mercy. In Galatians 3.22, the scripture brings its verdict upon us and shuts up all men under sin and says, you've sinned, that it might bring us to the promise by faith in Christ Jesus. Okay? Brings us to the promise uh, through Christ Jesus of salvation, but that's by faith. And then in Galatians 3.23, the law becomes the thing that shuts us up. We're kept in custody under the law, shut up to the faith which was later going to be revealed. 
So in all three cases, we see that God shuts us up to one thing or with one thing in order to bring us to something else. He teaches us through one aspect of something um, what we need to know in order to be brought to the next thing. Or as Paul puts it in uh, Galatians 3, the law was our tutor or our child trainer. Okay, our child trainer to bring us to Christ. I'd like to quote to you from Kittle's Theological Dictionary as to the word, what the word means. Sounds funny, Kittle's, but that's the, the guy's name. Commonly called the Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And I want to quote to you. It's quite a long quote, but very interesting concerning this word. And you'll see that it doesn't indicate at all that God made people sin. It only indicates that God shows people a particular thing, pronounces a verdict upon them, so that they are caught and they look at themselves and go, I'm stuck and I need a way out. And in the same way, the law, the, the scripture says we're under sin, says you look at the, the, at the word of God, you look at that and you go, oops, <laughs> I've blown it, you see? And so um, that then would bring us to faith in Christ. And he also says the law of God became like that uh, to show us what faith in Christ was to be like. Okay, um, I'll read from Kittles. This is uh, volume 7, page 746. In Paul's thesis in Galatians 3.22 and following, he says of, of Scripture, which is endowed with divine authority, that it shuts up all, that is, all men, under the dominion of sin, in order that the inheritance of the promise might be given to believers on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. To support this thesis, confession is made that before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being shut up, no, under the law, shut up to the revelation of God. The theme of being shut up, which is repeated in the passage, is strengthened by the new and related theme of custody. And they give the Greek word. This Pauline thesis is to be taken historically. It is thus connected with, this, with his apocalyptic doctrine of the aeons, that is of the ages, and is teleologically oriented to his understanding of salvation. Okay, teleology means the extension of something out into the into the distance or into the future. So when he talks about his the, his doctrine of the ages and says that it's teleologically oriented to his understanding of salvation, that means that it's related to his to Paul's understanding of salvation as it is now and as it will be stretched out through the ages. What God has been doing in all of history, basically, that's what it means by teleologically. God's accent of salvation in history. In God's plan of salvation, one thing takes place. This is another. This is quoting again. In God's plan of salvation, one thing takes takes place in order that something else may result. The first reference is to Scripture, which in its judgment brings to light the shutting up of man. Then there is reference to the law, which actually accomplishes this. How important this concept of shutting up is for Paul may be seen from the parallel, Romans 11.32. God has shut up all men, both Jews and Gentiles, under disobedience. That is, this is their definition here, that is, shown them to be disobedient and thus placed them under the same verdict in order that he may have mercy upon all. The teleological thrust takes, takes on eschatological significance here. Yes, mm -hmm. That means that the, the whole thing that he's pointing out about God's plan of history and salvation then takes on a, a, a reference to the future. 
eschatological significance. They go on to say this. In Galatians 3.22 and following, however, Paul seems quite plainly to have the figure of the prison before him. One might thus think of the shutting up of the dead in Sheol. As the dead are in the prison of the underworld, awaiting the resurrection and judgment, so men are for Paul shut up in the prison of sin. The law plays the role of the jailer. One cannot tell from Galatians 3.22 and following whether Paul was acquainted with the Gnostic view that the early world is a prison in which souls are shut up until the Redeemer rescues them by a descent. One should not forget the element of polemical distortion in the argument of Galatians 3.23 that the law does not bring about a holy and blessed enclosing, but a shutting up which renders man helpless and captive like imprisonment. Then they give the Greek word for custody. Ken, of course, have the more positive sense of the protect of protective custody. If this is the point in Galatians 3.22, then sukleo, which is the word for shutting up, is to be taken in the sense of Romans 11.32. Scripture shows that men are given up to sin, that for this re- and for this reason, God has, through the law, put them in custody to protect them against self-destruction and against the influence of wicked powers until faith is revealed. This understanding gives the law a limited but positive function and makes Galatians 3.23 parallel to 3.24. In 3.23, the law is, is depicted as protector, typed improperly, the law is depicted as protector as the protective prisoner, prison or warder, while in 3.24, it is the pedagogos, which means the child trainer or tutor who accompanies the immature boy. You get that? In other words, what they're saying is it does not say that God made people be disobedient or God made people sin or God made people be whatever, you see. It's saying that God only pronounced a verdict upon people to show them the state that they were in or he sort of ensnared them with exactly what they were in and showed them what they were like in order that he might bring them to something else. And God, of course, has to show us that we're sinful before he can show us our need of salvation. So then, verses 33 through 36, the end of the chapter, Paul explodes into praise and he just seems overwhelmed with the whole thing after he's written this down. He goes, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, he seems to explode into praise, extolling God's wisdom and God's um, God's knowledge, God's judgments and so forth, and the riches of all of this. And many times people use this verse out of its context, that which is the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11, They use it out of its context to try to show that you can't understand the way God judges people. So you'll just have to accept the fact that God is arbitrary, and if God has mercy on you but doesn't have it on somebody else, you can't question that. You see? But that's completely out of its context of Romans 9, 10, and 11. And taken in its context, we would have to say that Paul is so excited about the fact 
that God has provided salvation for the Gentiles. And the way that God has provided that is in complete accordance with all of God's principles. And he doesn't break any kind of justice or any kind of mercy to be able to provide salvation for the Gentiles after the Jews had struggled and sweated and strained trying to have salvation through works. He's not saying God is, is non-understandable. He's not saying that, uh, that we can't question what God does to see if it's just or not. What he's saying is how wonderful it is that God has provided salvation for the Gentiles. How wonderful the plan is that God has made a way for people through faith to be able to be justified. Because his whole, his whole um, uh, argument through 9, 10, and 11 is, this, is the whole thing of God can provide salvation for people because he's always done it that way. He's always done it through faith. And that's what he's arguing for all the way through the book of Romans is justification through faith. So we see in Romans 9, 10, 11, we see that God is not arbitrary. We've seen that in every case where it appears as if, if on, a, on a preliminary reading, if you're not careful, you can read very easily into that um, a preconceived idea that God is arbitrary. But when you look at it carefully and look at it in comparison with the other scriptures, especially where things are quoted from the Old Testament, that you, you come to the conclusion that God is not arbitrary at all and that God provides salvation through certain conditions, that is, through repentance and faith, and that God has the right to do that because that's the way he is in his mercy and in his justice. That if a person repents, God has the, the right on the basis of atonement, which Paul already took care of in Romans chapters 3 and uh, 6, that he has the right through the atonement of Jesus to forgive people and to restore them to fellowship with himself through faith and repentance. And that that is not breaking his justice, but it's to his glory because he has found a way to be able to bring man back to himself. And it's not through works. It's the whole argument goes all the way through. Um, yeah, I think we'll stop. <laughs> the end of the three chapters, I think we'll just pull cool it.